0: Well, I want to begin by welcoming all of you that watch every week online. This week, uh, the teaching is a little bit different format. This week, I am on the screen at every campus and at every service. I'm taping this message a little early. Uh, Jamie and I are privileged this weekend to attend a conference uh, to prepare me for some teaching I want to do later this year. And we're thrilled to have that privilege But I didn't want to stop this series because it seems to me that God is doing something in our church as we pursue freedom. And I didn't want to slow that momentum down. So last weekend in every service at every campus, at the end of the teaching, I gave people the opportunity to put on a card, an area of bondage where they would like to be released. And we gave you the opportunity to go and take those cards. And the response was overwhelming we received over 2,000 cards and every card has been prayed for specifically and individually and I got some of those cards and I want to tell you it was an exceedingly humble privilege to read and pray over those responses to see the pain to see the hope to see the passion uh, I tell you, it wiped me out, and I've prayed over my cards twice, and I plan to do so some more. And I just want to say to all of you that uh, put something on a card, and we had about 50% response at every campus, South Lake, West Fort Worth, North Richard Hills. And to all of you that did, I want to commend you for the courage it took to identify and take the first step toward trying to escape some area of bondage. In your life. And I just want to say, if you are visiting any of our campuses and you are investigating Christianity, you just need to know. I don't know what you've done or where you've been, but you're among some messed up, jacked up people, okay? So welcome home. We are a community of the broken. But you need to know something else about us. Because we believe in the resurrection of Jesus we also believe that we do not have to stay stuck where we are and we intend to pursue freedom. Like, for example, uh, the brother on the testimony I want you to hear right now.
1: My name is Hector Inojosa. You're asking me these questions like you think I drank a lot. You know, I only got drunk one time. I was like 16 years old. I didn't sober up until I was 31, but that's still just one time. But when I was a young, I was like between seventh and eighth grade, I was at a quinceanera with the uh, girl of my dreams. And at that party, she dumped me. And uh, I felt embarrassed, I felt ashamed, I felt hurt. It had happened in front of my mother and all of our friends and they were embarrassed for me and they didn't know and I and it was just an ugly, ugly feeling, feeling rejected and and somebody, one of the one of the guys said, Hey, we we got a bottle of champagne, you wanna come have some? And after a couple of cups, everything changed. I felt right again. I felt bold again. I felt taller, you know. And I I always wanted to have that feeling again. It's called chasing your first high, and I spent a lot of time doing that, and and it it never worked. At one time, the alcohol helped, and now it's the thing that keeps you in bondage, and everybody can see it but you. For a long time, people said, you drink too much, you need to stop, and for about the last three or four years, I, I really, really wanted to stop. And I couldn't. And so it gets even more shameful. And shame is no longer a feeling. It's a being. You've become shame. And, and you don't see how anybody, and especially God, could ever love you. So I'm at a um, like a festival uh, for the city. And, um, and I'd been drinking all day. And finally somebody said, you need to go home. And I lost my car. <laughs> so... Um, I started to walk home. When I tried to jump on the curb, my foot caught the curb. And for years, I had been asking God to give me a sign. Well, it was a bus stop sign that was sitting right in the corner of that street, and I hit it with my head, and it bashed my head open, fell back, bounced the back of my head, and then I couldn't get up. And um, it occurred to me that had I not been drinking I probably wouldn't be lying on this guy's driveway bleeding to death. And that's the first time those kind of two thoughts connected and um, we call it a moment of clarity in recovery. I like to say that that God brought me to recovery and then recovery brought me to Jesus. And I started thinking back of in my career of all my drinking and and I could see how God had done things and at work, things he was there all the time, and when I appreciated grace at that level, that's where my grace, that's where my view of grace comes from. Is he, he was there all the time, and uh, and that nothing I did ever kept him from loving me. And so, we believe that Christ who is
0: in us, is stronger than any chain that has been on us. And so what I want to do now for the next several weeks is begin to address some specific areas of bondage that showed up the most on the cards. And I want to begin with the bondage that first appeared. You remember that we were created for freedom. Some of the first words of God to man were, you are free. We were created to live free. And the very last words in the Bible about man before sin entered the picture are these words from Genesis chapter 2. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, by naked, it means they were in an environment where they were transparent, where they could be vulnerable. They had nothing to hide. There were no secrets. We were created to live without shame. Now, we know sin entered the world, and the world that is is not the world that was. We see evidence all around. There was nothing more proof of that than this past week when they took Bluebell off the shelves. So don't tell me we don't live in a fallen world. They said we can't eat bluebell because it might kill us. We've known that for years, okay? That's why we eat bluebell. That's how we want to die. But seriously, every day we see the headlines and we know this world is messed up. And it is especially filled with shame. And the presence of shame always means the absence of freedom. Because bondage is shameful. And I want to start with shame because really, in some ways, the bondage of shame always accompanies other kinds of bondage. I could just see it in the cards I read this week. Maybe your bondage is lust. Maybe your bondage is debt. Maybe your bondage is alcohol. Maybe it's anger. Maybe you have a low self-esteem. But whatever your bondage is, it's always accompanied with shame. And we keep our bondage in the secret because shame is afraid of being found out. When I was a boy, my brother and I would go on Thursday nights with my parents to the old Bronco Bowl in South Dallas. They were in a bowling league. And you young people are not going to understand this. But when I was a boy, we didn't play like this. We, we used our legs to play. So we found a paper cup, and we crumpled it up, and we found some other boys. And in the uh, aisles of the Bronco Bowl, we would play tackle football. Well, you can see where this is going. So one night, my brother and I, we laid a boy out. I don't mean we knocked tackled him. I mean, we knocked him out. And a big crowd gathers around, and all of a sudden, some grown-up points at me and my brother and said, I think they did it, and we took off running. And we found the pit where my mother and dad were. And we sat down and we sat still. And we were terrified. Don't you want to go play, boys? Oh, no. We want to be with you. And the next Thursday night, oh, we cried and cried. Don't make us go. Don't make us go. Because, you see, we had a secret. And that shame put us also in the bondage of fear. It put us in the bondage of anxiety. That's what shame does. Bondage creates shame. But shame creates bondage. And the reality is... We all have skeletons in our closet. But have you ever realized how many people in the Bible did too? I mean, come on. Uh, Moses killed a man. Abraham lied about his wife. David cheated on a man's wife and then killed the man. And yet we can see their stories and we can believe in their redemptive narratives. But not ours why remember we said last time the big question is not what the big question is why why do we live in shame and behind the why there's always a lie and i just want to share with you the two lies that are keeping us in the prison of shame lie number one i am what i did did you hear that earlier where shame wasn't just a feeling shame was my being Shame says what we did is who we are. See, shame is different from guilt. Guilt can be healthy. Guilt says, I made a mistake. The prodigal son said, I have sinned. And guilt can be healthy if it leads us to confession and to repentance. Guilt says, I made a mistake. But shame says, I am a mistake. I did bad. So I am bad. And that's prison. Because I can repent of doing wrong. But how can I repent of being me? And your enemy, who is a liar, is also an accuser. And the enemy wants your iniquity to become your identity. Now, we said before, we do this, don't we? In the Bible, we don't call her the woman Jesus forgave we call her the woman caught in adultery we don't call him the son who came home and was forgiven we call him the prodigal son we don't call him he went to the mission field planted churches preached the gospel and died for his faith Thomas which I admit would be a very long name we call him doubting Thomas we take the worst moment of someone's life and give them a label and so your abortion Your addiction, your divorce, your time you got so mad that you did what you wish a thousand times you could take back. That becomes who you are. Several years ago on 60 Minutes, they did a a documentary on this this disorder that they call uh, superior autobiographical memory. There are people that can't forget anything. The University of California did research on a woman named Jill Price for six years. This lady can remember in detail every day of her life since she was 14. Now, you might think if you have a bad memory, there'd be a blessing. It's not a blessing, it's a curse. Every mistake, every bad choice, every time she got hurt, every time she's been disappointed, she can't forget. She can't sleep. Her past has now become a prison For her present. I hear people say. Well I have a bad memory. That's not our problem. Our problem is. We have a bad forgettery. And we can't let go. And the past can be a good classroom. Where we can learn from our mistakes. But the past makes a terrible prison. And so I'll say it one more time. Freedom's first step. Is recovering your true identity. We need to let the voice of the Father tell us who we are instead of all these other voices. But here's the problem. Shame doesn't make us want to approach God. Shame makes us want to withdraw from God, to feel like God couldn't possibly love us. And so the another big lie that we tell when we feel shame is hiding Is helping. What did Adam and Eve do? They immediately tried to cover up their shame. They put on fig leaves. And we've been doing the fig leaf thing ever since. Some of us try to cover up with what I would call isolationism. You remember the woman at the well in John 4? She went out at midday. Why did she do that? Why didn't she go out in the morning or the evening with the other women? Why did she go out by herself in the middle of the day? Because shame isolates. And so because of shame, we tell secrets. We, we don't get honest in our marriage we have secrets in our family with our kids because of shame we don't go deep in relationships we just talk about the sports and the weather and our kids because of shame we don't get connected at church we don't get in a small group or any kind of venue where we would have to be real and talk about our stuff we just stay on the surface because shame isolates and that's how some of you are covering up and other people they cover up not with isolationism but with judgmentalism in other words I'm going to try to cope with my shame by finding someone that I deem even more shameful and point at them. You remember the woman caught in adultery. I think what Jesus is doing when he writes on the ground, the Bible says he wrote on the ground. It doesn't say what he wrote, but the word is catagraphing right against. I think he was listing the sins of all the people with stones in their hands. And when their sins got exposed, the stones got dropped. What were they doing? So often when we accuse and we point and we throw stones, we are covering up the shame in our own lives by finding someone else to focus on. And so we do isolationism. We do judgmentalism. You know a real popular fig leaf is legalism. Here's what legalism is. It's religion's way to try to cover our shame and pay God back. And so we keep our rules and we do our disciplines and we follow the laws. And by the way, law has never set anybody free. And we try to pay God back. And here's a thing I've noticed. A lot of us feel like if I feel shameful somehow, I'm making God happy. If I just beat myself up and live in misery all my life, somehow I'm paying God back for that thing I did that I can't undo. Listen, you don't need to get resaved. You need to get released. Um, I have a friend named John Weiss who just wrote a book I read. And in the book he tells a story. His son was on a traveling baseball team. He helped coach. And so they're at a tournament and, you know, it, you don't want to spend a lot of money. So they're at this hotel. Let's just say it didn't have any stars by it. You know, one of those hotels where the TV is chained to the wall and everything smells like cigarette smoke. And you don't sleep under the sheets. You sleep on top of the uh, bedspread. So they're at that kind of hotel. And the boys are all in a swimming pool and John's watching. And there's these two guys there who were clearly high. And as John begins to come uh, talk with them, he finds out they're uh, running from the law they're drug dealers and he's a pastor so they start to have a pretty interesting conversation one of them pulls up uh, his arm and shows where he's been stabbed in the side and the other one pulls up the shirt and shows where he got shot in the gut John says I pulled up my jeans and showed them where I fell off my bike in fifth grade and uh and one of the drug dealers said hey I can give you something to make that feel better he said no thanks I don't need that but after about an hour one of the drug dealers said to John what do you think we should do and John said Hiding isn't living. You need to turn yourself in. And it's not just drug dealers that need to turn yourselves in. The irony is we're trying to cover up our shame. When in fact what the Bible says is uncover it and bring it to God so that God can cover it. We're trying to hide from the one, the only one, who can eternally cover our shame. Paul says, Romans chapter 7... Who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Shame says pay and grace says paid. And you don't earn grace. It's free. So the very next three verses are some of my favorites. So now, there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. And he sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have let this truth set you free that in that body God declared an end to sins control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins there's two things that God has done there are two truths that can set you free one I call the purchase of no. You're never going to be free as long as freedom depends on you. So notice all the good verbs in that text belong to God. God did. God sent. God declared. Okay, get this. Your freedom is free. God is doing it for you. Look with me at Romans chapter 3. Everyone has sinned and has fallen short of God's glorious standard and all need to be made right with God by his grace, which is a free gift. They need to be made free from sin through Jesus Christ. Jesus is not contributing to our freedom. Jesus Paid for it. That's why the Bible says he now is in heaven sitting down at the right hand of the Father. Now, I've been reading through First and Second Chronicles for my Million Chapters Challenge. And there's a lot of stuff in there about the furniture in the temple. All these details about altars and bowls and tables. No chairs. Do you know why there were no chairs in the temple? Because the work of the priest was never done. Sin was never really paid for. It says Jesus went to heaven and he sat down. Why? Because... Freedom has completely been purchased now. You can trust it. There is no condemnation. And by the way, I looked up the Greek word no. And you know what it means in the Greek? It means no. It means no. Okay, so many of you are being chased by something heaven has already erased. So Stephen Brown, a well-known preacher and author, says early in his ministry, a woman came to him and she was just beaten up with shame because 20 years earlier she'd had an affair. And she asked Stephen what she should do. She couldn't live with it anymore. And Stephen knew her husband and he said, I don't always give this advice, but this time I did because I knew him. I said, you need to go tell your husband. And she said, okay, pastor, I trust you. I'm going to do what you say. But if this blows up my marriage, it's on you. And so Stephen said, I started praying, oh, Lord, if I gave her bad advice, please clean up the mess. And he saw her the next day. And she said she looked 15 years younger. Did you tell your husband? Yes. And he told me he had known about it for 20 years. And has been waiting all this time for me to tell him so that he could tell me he loves me. She said, I've been carrying that burden for 20 years for a sin I've already been forgiven of. Listen, it doesn't make the Father feel good for you to go around all day feeling bad. It doesn't. Your shame isn't paying off anything. It's not helping anything anything. And by the way, I want you to understand this. Jesus didn't just take your sin to the cross. He took your shame. We sing about it, bearing shame and scoffing, rude. In my place condemned he stood. Look at this verse in Hebrews chapter 12. The writer says, he suffered death on the cross, but he accepted the shame as if it were nothing because of the joy that God put in before him let me tell you something about crucifixion it was the most shameful possible way to die okay forget how it looks in the pictures and in the movies they didn't put a loincloth on people they stripped them he was naked on that cross covered in blood and flies and sweat and spit and the bible says he knew it would be shameful and he accepted it He accepted shame for the joy of knowing that it would be the purchase of our freedom. He willingly faced that bully of shame so that it would stop haunting us immediately. Because it wasn't just the purchase of no. The truth that sets us free, it is the promise of now. There is now no condemnation. And by the way, I looked up the word now in the Greek, and you know what it means? It means now. Let's not settle for this mediocre gospel that can promise hope for someday, but it can't give us help this day. When we walk in shame, We're saying, God, what you did for me in Jesus Christ wasn't enough. And that's exactly what the accuser wants you to think. And that's why, man, you're just taking a walk, you're in the shower, you're driving in your car, and all of a sudden, the haunting memory comes back. Where do you think that came from? The accuser wants to remind you of your past to put you in a prison in the present. And so, the next time Satan brings up your past, you just remind him of his future, okay? Listen, every saint has a past. But listen to me. Every sinner has a future. There is now no condemnation. Our future is not confined by what we did. Our future is defined by what Jesus did. So when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward, I look and see him there who made an end all my sin because the sinless savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me shame wants you to look at your sin and grace says God looks at the son when you believe that that there is now no condemnation you can begin to walk in freedom look at Ephesians 1 verse 7 in Christ not we will be we are set free by the blood of his death and so not we someday but we have now forgiveness of sins how rich is God's grace freedom is not just a future possibility it's a present reality you know when president reagan would fly in air force one he asked the pilot one time how come you always try to land so close to the start of the runway and the pilot smiled and said mr president all pilots know uh, the runway that's behind you is of no value okay god wants us to look at what's ahead God wants us to see the future because God sees it. You can't rewrite the past, but you can be released from it. What do you think Peter's, I wish I could have that back moment was? Now, here's what I think. He's by a fire. And they said, aren't you one of his disciples? Oh, no. Three times. Oh, no. Not me. Not me. And then a rooster crowed. And the Bible says, Jesus... Looked at him. Now, I'll ask you. What look do you think was on Jesus' face? I don't know why, but always in the past, I always thought Jesus would have looked at Peter and thought, Man, you scumbag. How could you do that? How could you let me down? I'm so disappointed in you. And then it dawned on me. Where in any of the Gospels does Jesus ever look with contempt at a broken sinner? Do you know what look I think was on Jesus' face? I think it was love. I think Jesus looked at Peter at his worst moment and saw his future. Saw what he was going to be. Saw what he was going to become. Now, let me ask you something. What's your by the fire moment? What's that skeleton in your closet? What's that thing very few people know about? What's that? Oh, if I could just go back in time, I would not. Moment. Your biggest mistake. Here's what I believe. That when we stand before the father. He's not going to say that that moment is your greatest wrong. Because the greatest wrong is to not leave my greatest wrong with Jesus. No sin by us is greater than His sacrifice for us. No shame that is on us is greater than His work in us. Our biggest mistake is... Is not to take our biggest mistake and just give it to Jesus, who turns stains into stories. And so again, my friend John Weiss in his book has a beautiful story. He's got a little boy, about three or four years old, named Silas. And his wife calls him on the way home and says, I'm just warning you about your son. Of course, you know, why is it, ladies, that when our kids mess up, they're our kids? Uh, But I'm just warning you. Your son has painted a giant spray paint X on the driveway. And when I say giant, John says he saw it a hundred yards away. I mean, it looked like something you'd paint for a helicopter to come land on. And so he walks in the door and there's little Silas. He's hiding in shame behind his mother. And John looks at him and says, son, X is my favorite letter. If I was going to paint a letter, I'd paint an X too. And little Silas reached into his pocket and pulled out some wadded dollar bills and tried to give them to his daddy he said no son this one's on me and so they go to Lowe's and they buy some chemical agent and about a hundred steel wool pads and John spends the next four hours on his hands and knees scrubbing and scrubbing concrete and he says a couple of weeks later his brother came to visit and little Silas took his uncle outside to the driveway and Silas says this is where I painted a big x on the driveway but it's not there anymore. And his uncle said, Silas, did you clean it up? And Silas said, No. I wasn't strong enough, but my dad was. Your father's strong enough to break every chain, to erase every stain. And you don't have to live in that cell of shame anymore. When Jesus came, to preach. He wrote out a scroll. A scroll where Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointing me to to preach good news to the poor, hope to the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. And a little bit later in that passage from Isaiah, there are these words Instead of shame and dishonor, you will enjoy. A double share of honor. Now that's your future. That's what God has for you. No shame. Double honor. For his sons and his daughters. Man, I just so hope you can believe this. Because truth sets us free. And I want you to embrace God's promise. Shamelessly. So, I want you to pray with me, and this may seem a little awkward, but I want you to do this. I want you to think about that thing that's keeping you in prison, that skeleton. I want you to just grab it and hold it. Bow your heads and just hold it with me. Just hold it, okay? And so, Father, we, we own it. We own our sin. We, we take responsibility for our failures and our shortcomings, we don't plead extenuating circumstances. We're not putting the blame on anyone else, Father. We we fall short of your glory, but God, we are tired of taking back what you want to take away. And so, God, take away the shame. Everyone, just open your hands right now. Just open your hands. And I, I just want you to imagine the Father is taking that out of your hands. Let him have it. Don't close your hands again to keep them open. God, take it away. Take away our shame. Let us out of this prison so that we can believe the good news that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And God, help us to believe this shamelessly. For Jesus' sake, amen.